presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our second in our series of lessons on uh, the subject, It Is Finished. And of course, we're talking about the, uh, the sixth of the seven sayings of Jesus. The Greek word is tetelestai. Uh, certainly that was a cry of accomplishment. The word tetelestai in the Greek is in the perfect tense, which means it's a past action and it has continuing effects. That is, when Jesus said it was finished, He meant it is at an end, it's over, it's done, it's completed. The question is, what is it that was accomplished? Certainly Jesus gave no explanation at the time, but He had given some previous hints along the way. Uh, for example, and this is in your notes from in the introductory part, from John chapter 12, He says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And how was God going to glorify Himself? And how would God glorify the name uh, of Jesus? The cross brought glory to God. Uh, God is seen as just and the justifier. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 26, He's just because He punishes sin. Uh, He's the justifier because the sin that He punished in the Lord Jesus as He poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross was not for Jesus' sin. Jesus didn't have any sin, but it was for the sin of all of God's people. Now, what we're going to talk about today is the prophetic connection. Uh, The Bible tells us in Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a uh, small selection of prophecies. Uh, There are many of them in the Old Testament, but we're just going to look at a small selection of them and, uh, and, and talk about that. Now, uh, we'll begin, I think, as a background in Genesis chapter 3, because that's where we see the first sacrifice take, excuse me, the first sacrifice take place. Uh, Beginning at Genesis chapter 3, uh, remember that the, the man and the woman were in the garden. Uh, there was only one prohibition, and that was they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that they ate of it, they would die. Uh, we know that uh, they did eat. They did not die physically that day, but they began to die physically because ultimately um, we know that Adam hundreds of years later did die. But what happened? They died spiritually that day. They were separated from God because of of what they had done. Now, 
What I want us to do is to pick up the story in Genesis chapter three, verse eight. Remember what they what they did was after they ate, they recognized, they came to the realization there was an awareness that they were naked, and they hid from each other, and they hid. I don't mean they went their separate ways, but they covered up. And of course, God would come in the cool of the day and fellowship with them in the garden, and they hid from God. And it was God who initiated the the reconciliation between Himself and our primeval parents there in the garden. Verse 8 of Genesis 3 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why were they hiding? They were hiding because they were guilty of sin. They were feeling guilty. And the reason they felt guilty was because they were guilty. And the reason they were guilty is because they had broken the single prohibition that God had said about eating of the forbidden fruit. Uh, and uh, and they felt the necessity to cover up. They were... Uh, hiding as it were they hid themselves in the bushes apparently from the lord but they were also hiding their nakedness and uh, let's let's see how well that worked for them it says but the lord god called to the man and said to him where are you now remember when when god asks a question he is not looking for information god is omniscient he knows the end from the beginning god already knows everything what he wants adam to see is where adam is where where he really is as far as uh, spirituality is concerned. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now again, God is not looking for information. God already knows what they have done. And notice the man notice the man's response, and we still do this today. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Notice this blame shifting that's going on. It's not only the woman's fault. I didn't ask for it. I lay down to take a nap, and when I woke up, I had this uh, surgical scar on my side, and uh, and she was lying there next to me. Uh, I didn't ask for her. And then not only is it her fault, but also, God, it's your fault, because uh, this was your idea. I didn't ask for her. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman, and notice she does the same thing. The woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." Now the serpent deceived her, but the serpent didn't deceive the man. And we know that from First Timothy chapter two, verse fourteen, where it says, "In the fall, the woman was deceived, but the man was not. He went into it with his eyes wide open." In fact, if you if you read the earlier verses. Where the uh, where the actual sin occurred, you'll note that uh, it was the it was the woman who was in dialogue with the uh, with the old evil one in the form of a serpent. 
And uh, and she was deceived, and then it says she gave the fruit to the man who was there with her. So he knew exactly what he was doing, and that's one of the reasons that the the Bible says that the uh, that we. Uh, inherit our original sin not from Eve but from Adam because uh, he he was not deceived his eyes were wide open when he went into the transgression and the Lord God said to the serpent because you've done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life uh, the first curse was apparently this serpent uh, had legs or wings or something where it could get around in a different way but now it would crawl around on its belly it was part of the curse and then but the real significant part is verse 15 and this is what's known to theologians as the proto-evangelium it's the first mention of the gospel and yet the word gospel is not used here see if you can pick it up i will put enmity he's god is speaking to the serpent to to the uh, evil one in using the form of the serpent i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head uh the some of the newer versions other newer versions say he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel and that's a picture uh, of what was going to happen at the cross now obviously if this is all the information that we had in the old testament we say what in the world does that mean but remember revelation is unfolding uh, as you read the scriptures we learn more and more and more and as we learn more and more we come to realize that uh, that it would be the old evil one's people who would nail Jesus to the cross. And yet, uh, in doing so, Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. He would... He would uh overcome the wicked one through his uh, death on the cross that's the reason he one of the things that he cried out this is the sixth saying from the cross it is finished he had accomplished something there on the cross uh, and notice the next thing that happens it says and the lord god made for adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them now what's the significance of that well the significance of it is their vegetative uh, garments were insufficient Oh yeah, they covered them up. I guess you couldn't see anything. But in the mind of God, certainly that's insufficient. That's a picture of our trying to save ourselves, trying to do the best that we can. And uh, maybe God will be pleased with the best that we can do. Whereas God says, no, the only thing that pleases me is uh, uh, is the death, uh, uh, the substitutionary death of my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be clothed in my righteousness. The only way you can get my righteousness is through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this sacrifice, uh, animals had to be killed in order for their skins to be made into garments to clothe these people. So here is a picture of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How? Through the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 
Here in the Garden of Eden, in this primeval setting, we see the transgression of God's law. We see them hiding from God and each other because of their shame. And we see a seeking Savior. We see God coming and confronting sin. We see God promising a victorious Redeemer. And we see a symbol of the perfect provision that certainly God would make that day at Calvary's cross. Now, between uh, before we before we look at Psalm 22, let's let's talk just a little bit about something that happened around the 15th century BC, and that is between the uh, time of the uh, uh, that the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, and remember within a, within a few months they arrived at Sinai, and that's where they would get the law, the ten words on the tablets. And they would get the pattern for the tabernacle because part of that law was a was was a law that was given for the sacrificial system. And in looking at the sacrificial system, everything pointed to this ultimate sacrifice that one day Christ would make. But there was there was. I mean, you look. You look at the Ark of the Covenant. It, it was made out of wood. It was covered in gold. Well, there's a picture of Jesus as our Ark. We're only safe under. And on top of that Ark was a was a solid gold mercy seat. The only place you and I can be under the mercy of God is in the Ark, and that represents Christ. The wood, His humanity. The gold, His deity. All of that stuff is really a beautiful picture of uh, of Christ uh, and His relationship with us and what He's done in order to redeem His people. But there's one thing that uh, that happened, uh, and I put this in your notes, uh, uh, and it has to do with the uh, the serpent on the pole. Um, I guess before we read this, I need to refresh our memories about uh, about that incident. Remember, the the children of Israel just grumbled and complained and fussed and fumed the whole time they were out there in the wilderness. And at one point, God sent uh, uh, venomous serpents among them and would bite them, and people would die. I mean, they were just dropping like flies, and. Uh, and it says in uh, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 8, we'll read that. It says, And the people became impatient on the way. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So let's pause there for just a minute. He said, Pray that the Lord will get rid of the snakes. And what was God's response to get rid of the snakes? He said, No, no. I'm not going to get rid of the snakes. The snakes are still going to be all over the place. And there's a good chance you're going to get bitten. But he says this. He said, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole that was made out of bronze. And bronze is always a, a, uh, a picture of, uh, of judgment. You remember the, uh, the altar where sacrifices were made. Was a, it was not a gold altar. It was a bronze altar. It's a picture of, uh, of judgment. 
Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So what what would happen, this is a picture of sin. And what would happen is that when when, when somebody would get snake snake bitten by these venomous creatures, uh, either they could look at their look at their ankles or their legs and say, Woe is me, woe is me and uh, and just eventually die, or they could look at this serpent who was uh, this this bronze serpent on the pole, and when they looked there, they would look and they would live. They would not die from the uh, from the snake bite. He said, "Well, what's that got to do with anything?" Well, remember John three sixteen, and uh, most everybody can quote that. But when John, uh, when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus there in John chapter three. One of the things that he said around that time when he said, For God so loved the world, he said, he said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, talking about this bronze serpent on a pole, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And what's the idea there? See, this is a great picture. A great picture. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure Nicodemus eventually made that connection. I don't know whether he did at that at that precise moment or not. But here's a picture that you and I have been bitten by sin. We we are sinners by birth. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. And how is it that you and I are going to be redeemed? What is it that we're to do? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent and people who were snake bitten looked and lived when they looked at the bronze serpent, so also who we who are snake bitten by sin, all we have to do is look to Jesus. Look to Him. Do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we look to Him and we live and we say, Thank You, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sins. Whoever, all you got to do is look. Whoever, whosoever will may come. That's true. But there are some inherent problems with with us as far as our ability and our willingness to come. And as we get into more and more into the study, we will certainly see that. Now around 1000 B.C., which is uh, uh, several centuries, uh, about five centuries after what we were just talking about, about Moses there in the wilderness, came Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a great psalm as far as depicting the crucifixion itself. I, I hope you took the time. That was part of your reading assignment. I hope you took the time to uh, to read that. The fascinating thing, to me at least, is that in uh, around the time this was written, around 1000 B.C. by David, crucifixion did not even exist. Uh, it was. It came into existence late of a century, maybe two or three centuries later. So when David writes this, he is prophesying uh, essentially something that was going to happen uh, hundreds of years later, uh, a thousand years later, and it was and the, it was not even being practiced at the point when he we said it. Notice how it um, how it begins. It says, "My God, my God." Why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Of course. 
That was one of the sayings of Jesus from the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, I find no rest. Why, why would God the Father not answer? Is because Jesus had become a sin offering and the Father had turned away from Him. And that was part of the wrath of God, the separation that they experienced, that Jesus experienced. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Remember the word despise. Uh, does in our in our culture it has the idea of uh, of hatred, but the word despise itself means to take lightly, taken lightly by it. This is no of no consequence. Um, it says they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Uh, all who see me mock me. Uh, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're a mockery. They're making, and of course, we when we read the New Testament account, we see that's exactly what was going on at the time. Verse eleven: Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Why were your bones out of joint? Because he was suspended on that cross, and the longer you hung there. Uh, the the weight of the body would just pull things out of uh, out of joint. My heart is like wax; it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. What is a potsherd? That's right. It's it's a broken piece of pottery. Remember when Job uh, had his experience and he was sitting out there in the ash heap? What was he doing? He was scraping himself. And what was he using? He was using a potsherd, a piece of broken pottery. My uh, so it's 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 extremely dry. His his mouth is dry. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. Now there may have been some four legged ones around there, but the truth is, uh, Gentiles were called dogs. Remember when Jesus. Uh, uh, talked to the, uh, the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus, said, "Please heal my heal my child." And Jesus said, "It's not right to give uh, to give uh, the children's bread to the dogs." And he was talking, you know. I'm sure Jesus didn't mean it in a demeaning fashion. He was checking out this woman's faith. Essentially, he said, "It's not good to give though. You don't give bread to the to the to the dogs." And the woman said, "But even the dogs uh, get the crumbs." That are under the table. And Jesus said, Great is your faith. And of course, her child was uh, was healed. So the dogs here probably represent uh, the Gentiles. Uh, that would have been the Romans who were there. Dogs encompass me. A, co- a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And then notice verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here's Jesus being crucified. You know, one of the... uh 
Let's see, there was a there was a book written back in the 60s called The Passover Plot by Hugh Schoenfield. And he was saying that, uh, he was making the point, and his point that this, that this particular time in which Jesus lived uh, physically and had his, ministry, had his earthly ministry was a time when, when there was a lot of uh, false messiahs who would come up. I mean, there were always folks doing that kind of stuff. But anyway... Uh, Schoenfield uh, hypothesized that Jesus was like one of those people who just decided he would fulfill these prophecies and so that he would uh, be known as the Messiah. But the question arises, how is it that you get other people to do what they're supposed to do? I mean, Jesus is hanging on the cross. How do you, how do you make arrangements for somebody to cast lots and to divide up your clothing? So the, uh, that old book sort of uh, fell on deaf ears as a, as a general rule. But the description here uh, <clears throat> of, of crucifixion is just... Uh, is just outstanding you know spiritually we see the forsaken by god separated from the father physical pain and agony there was emotional uh pain as well the rejection and the mockery and then there was all the stuff that was going on circumstantially the comments that were being made the thing about the uh the the gambling for the clothing and all this had to do with the attitudes and the actions of other people now there's another great prophecy. Now again, what we're doing right now is we're just looking at the prophetic connection. We're saying, okay, well, last in our in our very first session, we looked at the crucifixion itself, and we looked at the place of the sixth saying in the context of the entire crucifixion. Now what we're doing is we're going back in time and saying, okay, in the Old Testament, what did it have to say about this uh, about this event of the crucifixion. So we we've seen it portrayed in the Garden of Eden. We we've, we've seen it portrayed in the uh, in the the bronze serpent that was lifted up by Moses at the time. All the fiery serpents were biting people. We've seen it in Psalm 22. Uh, uh, so there's a thousand BC. Now now we're going to look at Isaiah 52 and 53, which is probably one of the most uh, outstanding uh, passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that really point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, uh, this is a little closer to the time. This is around the 7th century B.C. So whereas David was around the 10th century B.C., Moses around the 15th century B.C., I don't know when the Garden of Eden was, but uh, now we look at the 7th century B.C. Notice it says in Isaiah 52, and Isaiah talks about God's suffering servant. This this really is the uh, greatest of the I think of the prophecies. Uh, Isaiah fifty two verse thirteen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely; he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. Now that's just sort of a summary statement of what's going to follow. Verse 14, As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now what's... what's what is Isaiah talking about here? He's beginning to talk about the humiliation of the Lord Jesus. 
And here he specifically talks about the effects of the beatings that Jesus got. Remember, he was beaten at least twice, probably three times. And the point that's being made here is by the time all the beatings were over, that you couldn't even recognize who he was. He had been beaten so much that in many ways he didn't even look human anymore. He had been beaten so much. Then Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Israel was was not a paradise, but that's where Jesus grew up, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire. He was was just an average-looking man. You know, he wasn't the blonde-headed, blue-eyed Jesus. He, he and the way he dressed. You know, he didn't he didn't uh, wear the uh, wear the robe that looked like he'd been Cloroxed fourteen times and have a halo around his head. You know, that, that was why uh, Judas had to kiss him in the garden that night. I mean, otherwise, uh, Judas could have just told the guards, "Say, look, just arrest the guy that's got the halo and the real bright cloak on." There was nothing about him that was unusual as far as his appearance was concerned. He was an average-looking man. Uh, certainly not. Uh, he was. He certainly was charismatic in uh, in the way he affected people, but it didn't come from his looks. He was verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised again. He was despised. He was taken lightly. This this is just another guy who who thinks he knows it all. It's sort of the attitude, and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. He didn't. He didn't have the right reputation. He didn't have the right social standing. Acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, just like uh, like the rest of us. And and again, here what Isaiah is doing is describing this uh, this humiliation. Now, beginning at verse four, he begins to talk about the sacrifice that the suffering servant would make. Let's let's read some of that. He says, "Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and a." Afflicted. All right, he's borne our griefs, borne our sorrows, but when we looked at him at the cross, when we just looked at him, we esteemed him smitten by God. Well, look at there. Now, if if he hadn't done something wrong, he wouldn't be in this fix right now. Smitten by God, but uh, there's that conjunction. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All 
all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now let me let me just mention one thing, and, and I know this will probably upset a few folks, but it's okay because I, we need to look at it and everybody needs to be aware of this. One of the things that's, uh, that is often taught is that there is healing in the in the atonement. Well, certainly there is spiritual healing. But is there physical healing in the atonement? Now, when I bring this up, I'm not saying that God doesn't heal physically anymore because He does. I've experienced it myself. And I've, I've, I know many other people who have. But the reason that I mention this is because of a passage in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. And I failed to put it in your notes, but I, uh, I want to read it. And uh, you just look over it and you come to your own conclusion. Matthew chapter 8, verses, uh, what did I say, 16 and 17. Notice, uh, notice what it says here. It says that, uh, well, let's go back to verse 14 to get the context. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, so what's happened? Jesus just healed Peter's mother-in-law. Okay, that's great. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he would cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So again, Jesus is performing his ministry of deliverance. He's also performing his ministry of healing. And all of these were things that attested to the fact that he was the Messiah. These were the miraculous things. Remember, Jews require a sign. Uh, it's the Greeks who seek after wisdom. So Jesus is, is doing all all of these signs, he's, he's performing these. Now notice what Matthew writes in verse 17. This was to fulfill... Now what is this? The healing of the Peter's mother-in-law, the healing of the people who were brought there, the sick, the deliverance, all this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So... Notice, he says, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That's what we just read. And so, Jesus fulfilled this uh, this, this verse 4. Uh, he carried our sorrows. He carried our illnesses. That was fulfilled in Jesus' public ministry, not in His death. Now, again, I want to make clear to you, do I believe that Jesus will heal? I certainly do. I believe He will heal physically. I don't think He does it on demand, the way some people would have you to believe, but I believe one of the, when, when we are ill, the first thing we ought to do is to go to the Lord and say, Lord, uh, would You please heal me? And uh, and Lord, I, I believe that, uh, that You can. And the Lord certainly can, and very often he does but I just wanted to uh, wanted to clarify that for for those who might uh, be be struggling with that and incidentally one one other passage that that relates to that would be first Peter chapter 2 verse 24 where Peter writes this 
He says, uh, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Now what wounds are you talking about? Well, here's, this, this definitely is referring to the wounds that He received on the cross. By His wounds you have been healed. But don't stop there. Read that next verse. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the, the healing that occurred at the cross, the emphasis is on the spiritual healing, that He brought spiritual healing to us. Alright, well, let's, let's get back to our study, otherwise we'll, uh, we'll, never, we'll never finish this morning. Uh, verse Again, verse 5, uh, "...but He was pierced for our transgressions." And, and notice the, the emphasis that Isaiah is putting, what happened to Him, how it applies to us. We look at Him suspended on the cross and we say, God, I don't know what the guy did. May, may I, you know, I've, I've said all along, He must have been some sort of deceiver and now God's got Him. He wouldn't be in this fix now. He wouldn't be crucified if there wasn't something wrong in this, in this man's life. And that's, uh, that's the way we look according to verse 4. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And notice, again, the emphasis is on the sin issue because, in fact, He uses all of, uh, all of those words. He talk, he's done talking about sin. He talks about transgression and, and iniquities and going astray. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? When we look at him on the cross, and we said, he's finally getting what he deserves. We never considered that the reason he was up there being cut off out of the land of the living, he was the reason he was up there to die was because of my transgression. And when when I look, when you look, it never occurred to us that that was what was going on. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Remember, uh, it was Joseph of Arimathea uh, who... Uh, Gave him his tomb. Of course, he he only needed it for just a few days, didn't he? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Remember the charges that were made against him? The charges of sedition? And yet, Isaiah says, no. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And then we see uh, after the Isaiah talking about the humiliation of the suffering servant and the sacrifice of the suffering servant, now he talks about the propitiation and the vindication of the suffering servant. Propitiation means to turn away the, uh, God's wrath because the wrath that wrath has been appeased somehow. Let's see what it says. Verse 10. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And this is a reference to the resurrection. That's how he's going to see his offspring. He's going to come back from the dead. He shall prolong his days. Again, the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. There's that word satisfied, which is what propitiation means. That the the wrath of God has been satisfied as far as the people of God's concerned, in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Notice, not to make everybody accounted righteous, but to make many to be accounted righteous. And how are they accounted righteous? That is, through faith in Christ. When we trust in Christ, then God credits to us the very righteousness of His Son. See, Jesus is accomplishing that on the cross, but ultimately it will be credited to us through the work of the Holy Spirit as He effectually calls His people to Himself. And we will look at that in a lot more detail as we get into the more into the study. And notice that He shall make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities. So this is a good time for you to be thinking about... Uh, about this. For whom did Christ die? Did He die for all of the people? Uh, every, all people everywhere? All the sins of all people everywhere? Or did He die for all of the sins of some people? In other words, what we're coming back to is, is did the death of Christ just simply make salvation possible or did Christ actually accomplish something? And, we, and we're going to talk about that. In fact, we'll spend the whole last session uh, talking about nothing but that. Uh, he goes on to say, Therefore, I will, and here's his vindication, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That is, he's victorious, and so the vic- to the victor go the spoils, is essentially is what Isaiah is saying. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, that, he, remember, he's suspended between two criminals. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now that making intercession for the transgressors probably is a reference to the first saying of the Lord Jesus when He cries out and cries out more than once, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and in doing so, they, He serves as certainly as our great high priest. And again, we will see that to a, to a greater extent. But this is, this is really the, the heart of the passage. Uh, <clears throat> notice uh, in Isaiah, uh, from Isaiah 53, where it talked about his propitiation, where God is satisfied by his, uh, by the uh, sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. First John chapter 4 verse 10 says, "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And certainly He was vindicated through His resurrection. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a passage that I did... Well, I just didn't have room to put it in your notes. 
but if you want to jot it in your margin, you might want to read it and reread it a little later. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Uh, let me just read it. I, we'll just take the time to read it. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So God has uh, God has promised. Remember the uh, the old hymn uh, by Philip Bliss. I think I uh, you'll remember from uh, the little promotional thing that I sent out announcing the uh, the the Bible study. Uh, the the hymn by Bliss is entitled "Hallelujah, What a Savior." Let me just read you. Uh, this man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished, was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. Jesus, dying for the sins of His people, vindicated by the resurrection. Incidentally, do you know uh, the, the Roman government... This is this won't be on the test, but it's just a little tidbit of information. The Roman government essentially owned the bodies of people who were uh, crucified, and what would happen was they would, when they take those bodies down, they would just throw them into the Valley of Hinnom. They were not buried. Uh, and the Valley of Hinnom was like a garbage dump. There was a uh, there was a fire that was always burning in there. So they didn't even get a decent burial. They'd just take them down from the cross and they would just throw them in this, uh, in this valley where this fire would eventually uh, consume their bodies. Isn't it interesting that uh, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, which Pilate acceded to that request once he was sure that Jesus was actually dead. And uh, and why why was that necessary? Why was why was it necessary to to rescue the body? Because there needed to be a burial. And why was a burial necessary? Because it they needed to provide proof of the resurrection, and it's, that's exactly what would happen uh, three days later.
Now, let's let's look at Isaiah. I'm sorry, not Isaiah. We've looked at that. Let's look at Ezekiel 36, and this takes place all around the sixth century uh, BC. Uh, and this is a promise that God made through Ezekiel of transformation, that uh, what God was going to do for His people. And notice what He says in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel. And now, remember, this is in the context of when the um, uh, nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, was uh, conquered by the Babylonians, and most of the folks were hauled off to Babylon. Uh, there were a few poor people who were left there to mind the store, as it were. But um, a lot of folks, this is when Daniel and his three friends were hauled off, and uh, Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah were, were all contemporaries. So this uh, this uh, prophecy by Ezekiel is a prophecy about uh, something that was going to happen uh, in the nation uh, Israel and to the people of God. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, listen. I'm not doing this just. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for me. You reflect on me. God is saying, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And here's what God says He's going to do. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Now, this is not talking about water baptism. Very often the imagery of water has to do with the washing of water by the Word of God. The Word of God is often referred to symbolically by water. Sometimes the Spirit of God is... is, is, uh, talked about the same way. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. See, that's part of the new covenant. You know, we, we talk today and, and we're sincere when we say it and we, we, we don't mean to be wrong. We say, you know, give your heart to Jesus. Well, let me tell you, Jesus doesn't want your heart because if you're, if you're not a Christian, your heart is deceived and desperately wicked. Uh, the only person who really knows what's in there is God Himself. And He doesn't want that. What is it that God wants to do? He wants to give you a new heart. And he, that's what part of the that's what the new covenant is. He gives us a new heart. He doesn't write, and he writes the uh, the words of his law in our minds and on our hearts. Let's keep reading. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. In other words, your a heart of stone is one that's unresponsive. I will make you responsive to me. That's, see, that's what happens at regeneration. Is that God changes our will. God doesn't save us against our will. What God does is because we are naturally hostile toward God, we don't understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to us. Uh, We consider God an enemy. Nobody ever seeks after God. So how in the world is anybody going to ever come to God? Well, what God does is He regenerates people. He gives them a new heart. He takes away that heart of stone. 
and He gives them a, a heart that's able to respond. And all of a sudden, at some point, he, part of that process is to give them uh, faith and repentance. And we realize that, good grief, I'm in a mess because I'm a sinner and I need the Lord Jesus. I need the forgiveness that He provides. I don't want to be separated from God for all eternity. As we express faith in Christ, as we repent of our sins, and that's like opposite sides of the coin, they go together, then what does God do? He shows mercy on us and He he saves us. He brings us, he brings us into relationship with Himself. He reconciles us. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. How does God cause us to walk in his statutes? Well, he gives us this, this new heart, these new desires. Uh, the spirit of God lives within us. And we want to please God. We want to do the right thing. Now, we still struggle because this new creation that we are is still housed in a body of flesh. And there's going to be a struggle until the day the Lord Jesus takes us home. But you will walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. So God promises cleansing from sin and giving us a new heart and a new spirit, a new attitude, uh, the the indwelling uh, Holy Spirit and the inclination to obey Him. I remember Paul wrote in Philippians 2 that uh, we are to continue to work out your salvation doesn't not work for you can't work for it, but what God works in, we are to work out in practical sense. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good pleasure. Why is it that the things that I do sometimes please God? It's because He work, He's working in my life, and if He weren't, then anything that I do would be like a filth rag in the eyes of God. And then uh, the the final passage that we'll look at uh, this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's also from the 6th century. And as I mentioned before, remember Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel were all contemporaries. Now they, they had different ministries during that time, obviously. And I don't know whether they ever saw each other, but I do know that Daniel read the writings of Jeremiah because Jeremiah, although they were contemporaries, Jeremiah got his start earlier than uh, than Daniel did. But uh, in Jeremiah, he talks about the promise of the new covenant that I was mentioning just a few minutes ago. Uh, Notice in Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Not just going to write it on tablets of stone. I'm going to put it inside of them. So it's not something that that works from the outward inward. It will be something that is within that that works out. I will be their God. 
I will put my law in them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, the, when you, you, you contrast the Old Covenant, the Mosaic uh, Law, the old, the old Covenant with the New Covenant, the Old Covenant was, was essentially a national type of covenant. The New Covenant is a very personal covenant. The Old One was a lot of emphasis on externals, had all these rituals that they would go through. And of course, the rituals were important because they were symbolic. They pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, but, but they nevertheless, they were still external. In the new covenant, what God does is internal. In the old, the emphasis was on conduct. On the new, the emphasis is first on character. Change the character, and if you change the character, what happens to the conduct? It changes, but it changes because of the right motives. And under the old covenant, remember, every time they, they had sacrifices, and they had them all the time, sin was just recalled over and over again, sins being recalled. They, they were made ceremonially clean, but their consciences weren't clean. And under the new covenant, the sin is not recalled. Sin is removed. And that's, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. In fact, um, the writer of Hebrews in the last verse of Hebrews chapter 8 says, By calling this covenant new, He has made the first one, the old Mosaic covenant, obsolete. And what is obsolete in aging will soon disappear. And it did a few years later. Hebrews was probably written around 66 to 67, somewhere along there, A.D. And of course... the other did disappear, the old Mosaic Covenant, because the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 uh, by, uh, by Titus, the Roman general. Now, what do we conclude from all of this today? So uh, we've got um, well, maybe about five minutes or so. It says, uh, let's, let's just look at the conclusion for a moment. Uh, The cross of Christ Jesus is the focal point of history. From the standpoint of time, God first revealed the necessity of a Redeemer for sinful human beings in the Garden of Eden by means of a substitutionary sacrifice. God clothed them with the skins of animals. And they apparently understood that because remember they had a couple of boys, Cain and later Abel, and uh, when it was time for them to bring their sacrifices, Abel brought the right kind of sacrifice because he brought an animal to sacrifice, whereas Cain brought a bunch of uh, a bunch of veggies, and God rejected that. So it's clear that God's plan all along has to do with uh, with the. Um, with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And again, the first mention at all is that sacrifice to cover, to clothe that uh, our primeval parents there in the Garden of Eden, to clothe them with the skins of animals, which was a picture of a blood sacrifice. It was necessary for an innocent to die in order for them to be able to live and to have a relationship uh, with God.
Throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, God reiterated the promise of a Redeemer, systematically revealing more about His person and work. And that's what we've been talking about. We talked about the, the serpent in the wilderness, the serpent on the pole in the wilderness. We talked about David's uh, uh, Psalm verse uh, chapter 22, where uh, we see the picture of crucifixion that did not either, which did not even exist at the time. And then we've looked at Isaiah, which is the the premier passage on the suffering servant. And we've looked at Ezekiel and um, and Jeremiah. There are many others. There's some marvelous passages in the in the book of Daniel that have to do with this same thing. Um, but there's just there's just so much time to uh, to deal with it. But notice uh, part three there of that uh, of that first conclusion, and that is, however, it must be stressed that the necessity for a redeemer for sinful human beings did not originate in the garden as an afterthought or as a quickly devised scheme. The fact is is that God planned the redemption of sinners prior to creation. Notice the passage from Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. The Him there is the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Notice, when was the the names of God's people written in the Lamb's book? It was written there before God said, let there be light. It was written before the foundation of the world. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that what God, what God does, oh, this is just so precious, I think, is that He gives us this new spirit to, uh, to be, in, we're, we're a new person, we have a new nature, and the Spirit dwells within us. One day at the resurrection, He will give us a new body. And then when we read the book of Revelation, it tells us that He will also give us a new name. We won't even. There's a, there's another way in which we will not even be able to remember all of the former things. What a merciful and gracious God He really is. And then the, notice the passage from Matthew 25. Uh, this is a, this is a picture of the judgment where where Jesus has got the got the folks divided up. The, the goats on his left hand, the sheep on the right hand, and the king will say to those on his right, "That's the sheep." Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice, this this sacrifice of Christ, it is finished. This is not an afterthought. And what God did in the Garden of Eden was not an afterthought. You don't see a picture of the the Godhead, as it were, wringing their hands saying, Oh my goodness, we put them in there. There's only one rule and now they've blown it. What in the world are we going to do about all of this? No, it's all planned before the foundation of the world. Names written in the Lamb's book before the foundation of the world. And then finally, only Jesus of Nazareth who is both fully God and fully man, fits the description and meets the requirements to qualify for and to fill the role of the Redeemer. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. All these Old Testament prophecies point to Jesus, especially His substitutionary sacrifice. 
And remember this, you know, you, we, we often hear people talk about uh, has, uh, who are on their deathbed and they say, well, you know, has, uh, has so-and-so made his, made his peace with God? You, you can't make peace with God. God has to make peace with you. And the way He's made peace, and the only way He makes peace, is through the cross. Uh, Remember that old hymn we used to sing all the time? I have no other argument. I have no other plea. I only know that Jesus died and that He died for me. Praise be to God for His grace and mercy. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.